Welcome to Making Money, the show with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster. Well, the old saying, Ron, and it's so true, one regret I have as an investor is that I didn't buy more real estate years ago because the old saying goes, they ain't making any more of it. Let's talk a little bit about something that I think just about everybody aspires to is owning their own home. And for a lot of people, when you say that, they, oh, they panic. They go, there's no way I can do that. But that's not necessarily the case. No, and I think that home ownership is the key to wealth building because home ownership has for generations been the financial foundation for most Canadians. It works exceedingly well as a wealth building tool because it forces us to save enough money each month to meet our mortgage obligation to the bank. You can say, I'm going to save 5 or 10% of my money, but it doesn't have the pressure on you because once you buy a house, you have an obligation to the bank. And if you don't make that, poor, that payment, there's the financial pressure that you could be foreclosed on and lose your credit rating and lose your home. So because of the added pressure, the forced savings gives most people the financial discipline that they wouldn't otherwise have. So I've always thought that home ownership is the key to wealth building because it's one of the few things that absolutely forces you to save. And if you don't, there's negative consequences. Yeah, it's not like saying, well, I'm going to put 5000 bucks this month into mutual funds. Well, that's an option. And if yeah. one month you decide, well, I think I'd rather go on a holiday. So you yeah. spend the $5,000 on a vacation. It's different when you got the banker saying with their hand out every month saying, come on, you got to make that mortgage payment. Yeah, a lot more pressure there. So what about, are, are homes still affordable? I mean, we, we see the average cost of a house in Edmonton and stuff, and, and numbers can be intimidating. What's your take on that? Well, I just remember back in the early 80s, the average Canadian was earning about $10,200 per year. And at, in Edmonton at the time, you could buy a nice little 1,100-square-foot bungalow for around eighty to 90000 And that put home prices at around eight to nine times the average income back then. Today, the average working stiff in Alberta is 36.7 years old. I mean, we have one of the youngest working populations in Canada. And according to the last cons- census, and I got these numbers off the government website, the average person earns $42,712 a year. Now, the average home price in Edmonton in December was $319,000. That works out to about seven and a half times a person's annual income. So in spite of all the talk of home unaffordability, it's amazing how little things have changed, especially in this province, over the last three and a half decades. The numbers are basically unchanged, aren't they? Yeah. yeah almost. What about millennials? They, millennials are, I don't know if there's been a more malign generation come along in quite some time, but uh, you hear an awful lot about talk about millennials. How are they doing on the home ownership front? Well, here again, you often hear a violin concerto of, of all the whining and noise about how bad it is and how tough it is for millennials. And in areas like Toronto and Vancouver, where housing costs are high, that's true, but if you look at the most of the rest of the country, the picture's much brighter. According to a report released by RBC Economic Research, 40% of the homes in Canada are owned by people 35 years old or younger, 40%. In Edmonton, that number jumps to 48%, and in Calgary, it's 50.6%. So if you compare Canada's millennial home ownership rates against the U.S., we look even better. South of the border, on average, Millennials only own 34.5% of 
homes down there. So in Canada, we're looking pretty good. Is one of the reasons for that the expectation that, you no, know, I want a house with all the bells and whistles? That's not necessarily, well, it's, it's not the starting point. My first house was a four-level split with 300 feet on each of the four levels. So if you squash that down, it would have been about a 600-square-foot house with a 600-square-foot basement underneath. It wasn't big, but it was the start. Kids today consider a 2,400-square-foot house on a fully landscaped lot with a finished basement in a nice neighborhood with a double garage. That's a starter home. I don't know about you. I didn't start there. No, I didn't start there either, no. <laughs> because they're paying so much, more of their money each month goes to interest, goes to taxes, where if you start with a smaller home, you've got lower payments, you've got lower taxes, and more of your money can go to knocking down the principal. So young people need to tamper their expectations. If you can get an average starter home in Edmonton for 319 and there's homes that you can buy that are even less, if you're willing to expend some elbow grease and tamp down your expectations, I think around here especially, home ownership is still quite attainable. So now if we're looking at, at, at owning homes as an investment strategy, uh, I'm just thinking, I'm maybe thinking a little bit outside the box here. Should you be looking at, if you're in a financial situation where you can do the the affordable thing, should you be looking at smaller centers and buying real estate in smaller centers or in different locales? Is that part of a strategy too? Well, I think you want to be careful, especially in Alberta, some of the smaller centers outside the core Edmonton and Calgary areas, they had an influx of workers come into their jurisdictions during the oil boom. Then the oil patch dried up and nobody was drilling anymore. So there's all of these homes that are sitting captive. And of course, the people have moved out, they moved back east or they moved back to Newfoundland. And so the house is empty and it's hard to even rent. So if you're in places like that, you want to be, you want to really be careful. Uh, a suggestion would be is to Go to a town where there's a university. Let's and, take Lethbridge as an yeah, example. Lethbridge yeah, Lethbridge. And buy property next to the university because you're always going to get people that are coming. And even if you don't decide that you're going to sell right away, you want to rent for revenue, you're going to have a consistent supply of people coming to get their education and you'll be able to rent it. Or to give the education, professors and the like often are looking for places to live when they come to a new community as well, right? Oh, yeah. I've got a... A uh, friend of mine who, who always buys houses near the university, and he's got properties near the University of Calgary, near the University of Alberta, and uh, near the uh, university in Victoria. And he rents them out only to married couples with kids, so he doesn't have the problem with parties. But there's a never-ending supply, and generally they're more mature, they've got kids, and uh, they, tend to, they tend to come and stay because they're terrified about losing the property because it's close to school they don't need a car you know that's one way if you're if you're looking at renting is to especially in smaller communities make sure that you can uh, assure yourself you're going to get a continual supply of renters okay let's talk about some of the basic strategy here what are what are some of the affordable strategies to getting into that first home well i guess the first one is just unpopular these days but buy a fixer upper Houses often need just a little bit of cosmetic work like paint, landscaping, and cleaning. 
and there are great projects that virtually anyone can tackle without construction skills. And the nice thing is that if you buy a home, you keep it for a year and you flip it, the gains are generally tax-free. I don't know about you, but it took four, how, four flips over about 10 years, 15 years, before I ended up in the, the, my, the, the home we live in now. So, you know, we bought a real small house, we fixed it up, we sold it, we had more of a down payment, we bought another one that was a fixer-upper, and fixed we, it up. <laughs> yeah, sold it, had more of a down payment, so by our third house, we were putting 50-60% down. And then doing two more, we got to the point where our, our last house we bought, we were able to put 90% cash down and uh, have a small mortgage, and we paid that off in a short period of time. So that's a good strategy, just moving along and just letting letting your profits build, putting them into the next property and going from there. What about a, a home that's being configured to be to be a rental property or having suites in it or something like that? Our first two properties, we had two renters that lived with us. We configured it so that there was individual rooms and then in one of the houses we configured it so there was a suite in the basement. And we did this until we had kids and it literally paid half of our mortgage every month. And literally, if, if you can increase your mortgage payment by 50%, you can decrease your, literally decrease your 25-year amortization down to about six or seven. So you can pay it off very, very quickly, especially with low interest rates, if you're able to get a little bit of extra income. And of course, nobody wants to do that anymore. They want a place with nobody around. But if you want to be able to pay it off quickly, buy a small house that you can do this. And of course, you can always keep the house later, use the equity in the house to buy yourself a place where you want to live, and then you have a rental property as well. So let's take a metro area. Let's use Edmonton as an example, because that's basically where we're based. We have a lot of, if you will, satellite communities around here. The Stony Plains, the Spruce Groves, Leducs, Fort Saskatchewan, St. Albert. Is it often maybe a good idea to be looking at those areas outside the metro region, but still are, are, are part of the metro region? Is that a good place to be looking to, to buy real estate? Oh, I probably looked a little bit closer at Stony Plain and Spruce Grove, and the bargains are much better out there, and that works into our, our next point, that literally you can find a better deal if you're willing to commute. Now, this usually works as well as you've, if you've got a fuel-efficient car. You know, if you've got... Uh, Big gas guzzler, not so much. Yeah, yeah if you, or if you've got a sports car that produces supercharged and turbocharged and gets 700 or 800 horsepower, and you're getting... Uh, five miles to the gallon? Probably not. But if you've got a uh, fuel-efficient vehicle and, and fuel prices are reasonable, uh, this is a very good strategy. What about getting into a property with some of your family members, maybe a brother or a sister or a mom and dad or something, and saying, well, look, I want to get started. Can you help me out here? Sort of creating a little bit of a partnership almost? If I look at young people that have paid off their homes quickly, they either had people in the basement they rented to, or they started off with a couple of family members where maybe dad said, the three of you are, I'll, I'll help you with a down payment. And, but you've got to live in the house and um, then you've got to pay down the mortgage. And of course, you pay it down enough so that the three kids, when they've sold the first place, they all had enough of a down payment they could go out and buy their own homes. 
And typically, that's not a strategy you see a lot of second and third and fourth generation Canadians do. But if you see people that emigrate here, that's one of the key things they do is, is once they've paid off their house, they, it's almost like a bee's hiving off. Some of them hive off and they move into a second house and they pay that off. And then they, some of them split off and buy another house and so on. So the family keeps uh, paying down mortgages quickly so they get real estate ownership. And that still is a very effective strategy. Let's talk a little bit about buying a lot and paying it off. Now, you have a story, your personal story about this, where you bought a lake lot years ago. Yeah, we had a lake lot up in Skelton Lake, actually. And it was a beautiful property when the kids were young. And we picked it up for a very reasonable price. I think I think we got it for like 30 or 40 grand. So we bought the property and we paid it off. Then the next thing we did is we got the utilities brought to the property and we paid them off. And then the next thing that we did was we poured a concrete pad, paid that off, then we built a garage. And of course, we use the place during the summer, so a garage was just fine. We put some cots in there, some running water, and uh, we lived in that for a couple of years until we paid it off. Then we poured the concrete pad for the house, paid that off, and then we put a house on and paid that off. It was like about a seven or eight year project to do that. By, by doing that, we kept our interest costs very, very low. And uh, we were ending up owning it 100% by the time it was all done. What about, you know, as we say, everybody has delusions of grandeur. Not everybody. A lot of people have delusions of grandeur about the property that they want to own. What if you start simply and maybe you buy a you know, modular home or a mobile home, as an example? Well, let me give you an example of what one of my kids is doing. They're going to buy a tiny house. And these tiny houses, if you look at them, some of them are really nice. Well, you can lay them out very well. There's not a lot of room in them, but they're very functional. Yeah, I think he, he because he's a, a computer analyst and he's by himself, he's looking at something 400 square feet. So he's going to buy a tiny house and he's going to put it on his friend's lot who's got a pad. And he's going to hook the utilities up. He's going to pay off the tiny house. Then he's going to buy himself a lot. And he's going to pay off the, pay off the lot. And it's out, uh, out in the country, so he, he's going to have 10 acres, I think. He's going to put the pad down and next move the utilities to it. Then he's going to move his tiny house onto the pad, pay all that off. Then when he owns the tiny house, the pad, he's got all the utilities to the property, and he's paid off the property, he's going to build himself a house, he's going to move into the house, rent out the basement, and put someone in the tiny house for rent. So he's got a couple of income streams, and he's got himself a new house. Yeah, and of course, you know, if you can find, uh, you can find a tiny house, maybe they want 10, uh, 10% down, and to pay, pay off the rest over time. Well, it's not that hard for a kid to come up with three grand. You know, parents yeah. can even help them. But when you get a three hundred or $400,000 house and they want 20% down. That's a different story. Yeah, all of a sudden you're looking at maybe eighty grand that you have to bite off for the down payment. So if you start in increments, it makes it much, much easier for you to, to get in. But there again, you've got to tamp down your expectations. And that key is, we just touched on there, down payments. That's an area that, uh, well, it, the, the rules have changed here over the last few years. They've, they've, it's gotten harder to get that down payment together. So in the next episode, we want to touch on that. 
we want to touch a little bit on how, what are some of the ways you can probably start to build that nest egg to get that down payment to get started. And do it a little faster too. All right. On the next edition of Making Money, that's what we're going to cover. Ron Hebert is the financial coach. I'm Gord Whitehead. The show is Making Money. Thanks for listening. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.